Hey everyone, welcome back to The Mage, the Hero Described podcast, vodcast, whatever it is now. We're looking at episode 22 of the podcast, episode 2 of the vodcast, and I am joined up, let me get side by side, there we go, bring up uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Eli Schwab from... What's up? Hey man, from the Devil in Detail podcast, um, your whole thing doing the vodcast on that also inspired me that, uh, hey, we got to take a look at what we're talking about while we're going through this. Got and, um, you know, comics impresario, publisher at large, you got a lot of stuff going on with Cosmic Lion right now. Oh my God, it never stops. It never stops. We got a Kickstarter going on right now for issue two of Ghost Agents, which I thought I had on the floor, but I actually don't. Um, it's a spy-fi action comic uh, anthology. Rocco Jerome writes it, and we got tons of amazing artists uh, seeing his vision out. So go to Kickstarter and search Ghost Agents, and uh, you can back us there. As well as Wizard Number 2, the comics magazine. It's a riff on Wizard magazines from the 90s. This issue, issue two, is 420 pages. Wow, that's And once chunky. I got there, I was like, we can't. Oh, it's, it's a chunky boy. It's going to be amazing. Uh, you can use it as a doorstop once you're done reading it, which is, it's a dual, dual purpose. <laughs> but um, it's going to be amazing in that, I think pre-orders are going to start for that around March 1st. It's huge. It features a ton of people. Um, and just, that's going to be amazing. Uh, more podcasts. Can I flip it? Cosmic Lion Radio, perhaps. Maybe my 10-year odyssey of podcasting continues there. Um monthly annually who knows with that podcast but can i flip it is also monthly and then uh the devil in detail is weekly man you are you are busy cranking away i'm waiting i'm looking forward to that uh to that ghost agents uh too i missed the first round on the kickstarter but this is it ben perkins the don apprentice poster for right. that that oh that was just i i I couldn't resist. That's going to be up on the wall at some point as soon as, you know, as soon as that Heck comes yeah. through. And you can get issue one through the issue oh, two. I'm getting it. So I'm getting it. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. All right. Awesome. No, that's great. That's got about, uh, I mean, today's recording this on the 19th of February. It's probably going to drop a little bit after, but there's still something like about 12 days left to, uh, to back that. You yeah. guys got fully Until back. Until the 27th of February. Yeah. You got fully back. Now you're in stretch goal territory. Hell yeah, we got some awesome stuff planned. Some stickers, possibly some shirts, uh, possibly we have these cool, um, like a riff on the G.I. Joe info cards that used to get on the back of your uh, blister packs on the back of your bo boards there. So it's, uh, that's going to be cool. Very cool. You get the, you get, you're going to get the, uh, the plus one on the action figure. No action figure just yet, but at least you get what oh, would have come man. on the back of it. Yeah, we want those though. We want to work to figures, man. Well, cool. All right. So we are here to discuss issue two of Mage, the Hero Discovered. Uh, just a little bit of uh, a little bit of bookkeeping here, everybody. Um, you know, over on uh, over on Instagram. Um, boy, what is that even at this point? I think it's Hero Described. I'll have to look that up and double check it. So uh, check us out over at Mage Hero Described on Instagram and um, here over at uh, at YouTube. If you're checking us out through YouTube, just, you know, give us those thumbs up, give us those likes, give us those comments. If you're having a good time, uh, would love some five-star ratings and reviews over on the podcast. If you're a past listener, if you listen through uh, hero denied and you're joining us on the rest of this ride on this reread, um, you know, 
some love would be greatly appreciated because, you know, as everybody says in this podcast business, uh, it helps us. It really does. Um, so Algorithm. <laughs> I'm sorry, what, man? <laughs> Algorithm. <laughs> We all bow down. We all bow down (laughs) to the algorithm. Uh, Yeah, send it those signals. Let it know. Let it know um, what you like, and then you know it'll throw up other stuff that you like. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, cool. All right, so let's dive on in. Before we started digging into, just before we started, you know, recording here, uh, we were talking about one of the things that, you know, with the reprints of Mage. And the way those had to come about, you know, the original uh, printing uh, materials all lost in the uh, bankruptcy of Kamiko, having to scan in, I think uh, Ben might have even mentioned or you mentioned on the last podcast, probably scanning in something like maybe the Starblaze editions that, um, that were done from those original prints. And, you know, so decisions and sacrifices had to be made in some of these reprints. And one of the things that got dropped out and if these are really great elements that you just lose in reprints, typically you lose, you know, the letter column. Um, so there's a lot of fun there. Uh, but also yeah. what was lost was these great forewords uh, by Matt. And I think they really show a great, um, they give insight into what's going on in his mind as a storyteller, as an artist, where the story's going. Um, and they are, you know, as, as Roy Batty says, you know, all these moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. So, uh, or something like that. Great, uh, great, one of the great improv lines of, of all times that Rutger Hauer came up with on the fly. Um, but uh, what I was thinking we might do as just a way to kind of, you know, share it with people who the reprints are the only way they, they've been able to experience these we're just going to, you know, humor us people. We're going to read through the foreword of issue one. I'm going to read through that. Eli's going to read through the foreword of issue two. Um, and then we will, we will dive right on in. Yeah. Um, so cool. I'm just going to, you know, you get the excitement. Hey, you get uh, guys and gals watching this on YouTube. You're going to have the excitement of watching somebody read to you. Oh Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be animated so, the, yeah so uh what we've got here is uh also i'm just gonna show here so we've got that uh spread there of the forward right inside the cover of chapter one nice big chunky forward from matt there in chapter one outrageous slings and arrows so he says uh so here we are starting everything off dear readers the book you hold in your hands is the start of a series that has been brewing in me for quite some time in one form or another It's a story that I've begun several times and shelved as many times. It has been reworked and rethought so many ways that at several times I believed that I would never see it evolve into anything remotely developed enough to publish. Even now, I don't feel that this is the only version of this story that I may tell. Some future time may see me again reworking this tale as I feel it contains the most archetypal elements of heroic literature. And just considering everything that he was working this story, hitting all the points of the hero's journey, the monomyth, without any awareness of it. Um, he's just tapped into that right from the very beginning. In understanding the philosophy of the hero, one must consider the unique mixture of glory, irony, excitement, fate, determination, and monumental sadness that has been evident 
in every tale of heroism from Gilgamesh to John F. Kennedy. It is a general prominence of any one or more of these qualities that determines the hero's exuberance or hesitation. But be he gung-ho or be he the height of reluctance, the hero is ever driven into a state of action. Like it or not, he must act and act again. Like an incomplete verb, the hero remains ever unresolved. But this is one of the many concepts on which I've built mage. Unlike the work I have done on Grendel, wherein good and evil are practically indistinguishable in the eternal cycle, herein there exists dark and light in a never-ending struggle for supremacy. This is not necessarily how I view things, but rather what I feel is the most apt vehicle for relating the tale of Kevin and the mage. Heroism is a relative thing, as the hero of one people is the arch enemy of their rivals and vice versa. In addition, this story is in response to several of my observations of the comic industry in general. These I will save for future editorials, but suffice to say here that I hope Mage will entertain you at the least and maybe even help you consider the hero that I feel must, all caps there, must reside in us all. So, petty stuff, and what I love is, you know, when you look at the trilogy, so, hey, this is a reread, so spoilers abound and things like that. Without getting into the details of why it's important, Gilgamesh is mentioned, bang, the first hero, the first superhero, one of the earliest evidences of the monomyth, bang, forward of issue one, and we've got Gilgamesh being mentioned right away. So certain seeds, no matter what was planned for the trilogy as a whole, whatever was percolating, there were certain seeds that, much like he talks about at the beginning of this, that for the entire story had been percolating and just laying there dormant waiting to just spring to life. So great. I mean, it just shows to the power of that Matt had, even as a youth, like the fervor he had, you know, because at this point he's what in his twenties that where he's writing this, just the power that he had. And I think it even continues in this one. If I may begin. Go for it, man. Dear readers. First, let me say thanks for the very favorable response we have received on mage number one. We will begin printing your letters next issue. A common element in all responses has seemed to be in favor of the raw experimental style that I use on mage. And it is this I would like to comment on. Here we go. This paragraph killed me. (laughs) In being an artist of any sort, one is akin to a big game hunter for the artist stalks the public. He seeks to attack the public and to carry forth their acceptance as a trophy. And the artist's technique is how he arms himself. The more of himself he puts on the line, the more naked he stands before his prey, the more dangerous the hunt is to him. It's all too easy to learn the conventional techniques and methods that dominate whatever market the artist stalks. Executing the piece in the slick, publicly accepted, publicly accepted style guarantees an all too easy kill and strips the hunt of all the thrill that it originally promised. The boardwalks and shopping malls are overflowing with artists that have let the public form their style instead of vice versa. 
The artist should instead seek to tame the public with the raw essence inside him. Art is man-made and should always appear thus. The evidence of a human hand at work is what makes a piece sparkle over the cold mechanical realism that is so prevalent today. Mage is from within me and I will always strive to present you with the raw gut level excitement that evokes that it evokes in me. When confronting the monstrous obstacle that the public presents, I will always choose to arm myself with the more challenging bow and arrow rather than the convenience of a high-powered rifle. As always, I look forward to hearing from, the, from more of you. Until next issue, always remember that magic is green. <laughs> Damn, Matt. Woo! Yeah, so what a, yeah, what an amazing... So, you know, as an artist, just curious, what are, what are your thoughts about that? Because that's like just a, a mini manifesto in a way that he's yeah. put forward there. I love that too. Like, especially looking at it again from hindsight and from an artist who, so for, for like 95% of his career, only pen and ink and, and markers and things like that. And it was just kind of now getting into like using an iPad and procreate and stuff like that. It, it, it feels better to get that pen and ink and it feels better to, and look, and as I was saying before, when we were talking about this, like when you look at the colors and the painting style and almost the markery look of the colors of this early mage, I like it better. It, it, it has a more raw, it has a more earthy comic book bound feel than further colors. We were talking about, it feels like, you know, it feels more like I'm looking at a piece of art rather than like the more higher res, the digital coloring that took that took later. And especially like say, if you're reading this on Comixology, there's nothing wrong with that, despite what they might've done with their app and, and all that, uh, another story. Um, it just feels more like a piece of art. I was saying it's like watching Star Trek on VHS versus watching it now in HD before you totally believed Brent Spiner was, he had the white makeup and he, all you saw was this plastic, man but now you see in the close-ups it's hd you see this is a human with white paint on his face you see his makeup covering blemishes and stuff like that it's just a different feel to look at this in the original artistic vision and color than it is to see it like digitally redone there's some changes and we always talk about this on the on the grendel cast it's like sometimes that original image and view that's just what it is I especially feel like that on the coloring of this original mage. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, um, I think that uh, when we went through this in the last episode, right, that really gave, being able to see that issue one and looking at it side by side, which I'm going to continue doing um, with this as, as much as I can, uh, really opened up my eyes. Ben's, Ben's perspective really helped me take a look at the reissues and the coloring job that was done by Jeremy Cox with a completely new appreciation, right? So uh, I'm not dogging on it at all. It's, there's, some, there's some great decisions. And look, this morning, I mentioned to you, I was looking at these, some of these pages side by side, prepping for this, uh, for, for doing the recording this. And, um, and there were some things that I was like, yep, gosh, I really prefer how this is in the original. And others I was looking at and going, oh, okay, that's interesting because that really totally changes the focus of this panel. And, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe at some point uh, if, 
you know, if Matt's kind enough to join uh, for a future podcast revisit talking about this here, it'd be interesting to dig in deeper and find out, hey, what decisions, you know, during that process of doing those reprints was driven by just um, sheer necessity from the materials that they had to work with and time uh, and mm -hmm. not having the original um, printing materials and publication um, pieces to run with. And what part of it was, oh, you know what? It's been X amount of years since I've had a chance to look at this. Um, maybe I can, you know, fix this, tweak this. I could have done this better while still honoring the, the spirit of it. So uh, sure, it's a fine yeah. line that any artist has to walk. And, and the artist's eye is so much different than our eye because the artist sees all the mistakes and the artist sees the vision he had in his head whereas we see it as this piece of art that we're looking at, you know? So while I am like, oh my God, I love this puke green background here. That's so cool. <laughs> you know, Matt might be looking at it and be like, I've always hated that puke green background and now's my time to change it, you know? Right. Kamiko touted, and we always talk about it, they had all those, you know, was it 207 colors or whatever their number was. So, so it might've been easier to, to, I don't know to get lost and be like, oh, I've got all these colors to play with. And so sometimes when you have too many tools, you use too much. Whereas if you only had six to play with, it might be, you might be more succinct. Another, uh, another thing that I thought was interesting in that forward is mentioning um, the art, artists who play to the public taste, thriving everywhere in public spaces. And he mentions and in malls. And this was the 80s. And I remember in the 80s, a big thing, at least maybe, maybe I just became aware of it in the 80s in malls. But all of a sudden in the 80s, and for quite some time afterwards, we saw the birth of the print, of, of the art store, the mass-produced art store, where you could go in and there would be thousands of pieces of art ranging across all tastes whether it was classical, impressionist, you know, Renaissance, um, Nagel. I mean, the Nagel boom was happening during this time. Um, and so the, the epitome of the commercialization of art, not to take away from any of the art that, you know, um, that people love, but I, I'm not sure if that's driven by that, but I seem to remember, I mean, it, it struck me that it's very apt that mention that this is art. Look, certain art was not going to be in that place. Like any other kind of business, you're going to be like going, oh, you know, those pieces, this artist, this style, that genre doesn't move. Don't order more of them, <laughs> you know? And once we're out, they're never coming back again. So um, most of the pieces that you'd find in a place like that had probably already proven themselves over time, some over centuries. But um, by and large, um, yeah, chasing that public approval. And, you know, definitely that was big in the malls. Yeah. And that's something Matt's always been able to do is, is find his niche and, and just work it. You know, he, he, he never does that, that thing that everyone expects him to do. You know, he's only ever done one Marvel book. And now whether that's Marvel's choice or whether that's been Matt choice, Matt's choice to work on the characters that maybe he likes more like Sandman mystery theater or the demon, you know, he's had these amazing runs, but on these like kind of smaller characters, but that's, you know, when you're, when you're doing a Hulk book, you have a, this 
line you have to run or, you know, I guess there's always people who can, you know, carve out their own niche in those wide streets, but you know, you, you still have to keep in a thing, but if you're doing the demon or maybe you're doing Sam and mystery theater, you can kind of reimagine like they did with Sam for sure. Yeah. And you know that, uh, or the golden age, Sam, not to get, not to get too deep into it, but you did, uh, you ran that great symposium interview with Jim rug talking about Hulk grand design and sitting down and reading just decades worth of hundreds of Insane. issues and noticing the trends across the time, both in storytelling and art that flowed through those. And, you know, that when you work on something like that, you know, for, you know, the, depending, especially on the decade you worked for one of those big houses, it was like, nope, this is the, this is the way we tell the story, you know? Yeah. Keep it between the, the Hulk lines. wears a suit now. He's gray and he's known as Joe Fix It. So this is what you're writing right now. And you're like, oh gosh. This yeah. is not what I signed on for. <laughs> and this is the style that's hot right now in selling books in the industry. So right. lean into that. Don't, you know, yes. we don't want to The sides of his head are shaved and it's just a 90s bowl cut on top. <laughs> okay. So, hey, let's, um, anything else let's get you want to bring up before we get in? Let me uh, see all good. bring this up. My, I have something uh, to bring up on the cover. I did a, I did a deep dive on this little poster. <laughs> Hold on Nina here. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to I'm trying to center this one here and it's not letting me it, uh, uh, I'm sure you can cut this out. Three dots in the top right. If you click that and then do pin or spotlight for all. Okay, perfect. Okay. <laughs> I can get a nose blow in here. We already got an edit point. Okay, there we go. And hold on a second while I, I'll just beep cut that out. All right, so here we are. Um, the cover. I just decided I'm going to take this uh, take this issue out. Uh, I love you all so much. I'm willing to go ahead and put my uh, my my first printing Kamigos uh, of Mage out there uh, out there nice. in the line of damage. I'm not a I'm not a slap junkie, man. I mean, comics are meant nah. to be read. But, meant to um, be read. You know, let me see if I can block out some of the light here so that we can get a, uh, to play with this earlier, the got fluorescence now, down here. And they're messing now, up. one thing I did notice on this cover while you're working on that, right below Kevin's body there, we see a poster that says Nina Tower Theater, I would expect, Friday, October 1st. So I had to do a deep dive there. and I was like, who's Nina? Is that an actual artist? And it is. That's the artist, the 99 Red Balloons. Lady. Oh, Nina Hagen. Yeah, I, that's what I'm guessing. Man, I didn't even see Squaw up here. Who's Squaw? Yeah. and We know, know Matt's a big music fan. And this really also, you know, you get the you, you get Kevin and uh, Mirth on the cover in this kind of just abstract hero-centered kind of, you know, floating out there, you know, in nothing on issue one. This really mm -hmm. captures what this story is mixing together in the setting. We've got this okay, we, we've got this urban environment, right? Mm -hmm. Kevin just kind of casually leaning there, hanging out in an alleyway uh, with the graffiti and the music posters on up. You know, it's saying something about just the kind of environment you're in. And then just this flash of the extraordinary, you know, the, the yeah. shadowed figure with all this magical green around it. So uh, it really does cover this intrusion of the magical into this like gritty urban world. Yeah, I love it. Like you said, like this, it's like literally 
a street level hero standing upon the street and then this magical character like literally above it floating above yeah yeah and that look also that kevin's got there really just um it's a little bit ambivalent. I mean, we, we use the word because it's used a lot for Kevin Matchstick, cynical. But it is kind of this very hard, you know, appraising, you know, look. This is not an accepting, you know, thrilled to see somebody, you know, look. Yeah. Not looking out at the, uh, not looking out at the audience, looking up at, uh, looking up at Mirth. And not necessarily, yeah, not necessarily thrilled, not necessarily unhappy either, but a little, very ambivalent. Yeah, he's, he... It takes him a long time to, to like buy in. It, it really does. You know, even after he sees monsters and, and survives this first page incident here, he's just like still, still being hard headed about it. So we continue. We got a little bit of a recap here on the back. I'm going to just see it if I can read it off my screen here. Actually, you've got the issue right there in front of you, right? You sure. want to read that little yeah. recap on the back? Death, last issue, thrusting themselves into the lonely life of Kevin Matchstick are the mysterious vagabond sorcerer Mint Mirth, <laughs> the evil Grackle Flints with their poisonous elbow spurs and a power that runs through Kevin's body and spawns from a struggle as old as time itself. Passing all this off onto a dream, off to a dream, Kevin sets off to work only to find himself trapped in a subway car with three Grackle Flints. In a desperate move, Kevin drives... That Kevin dives through the window directly into the path of another train. Bah, bah, yeah. bah. And that's the recap on the inside. And then here on the back, we've got following his first brush with the confusing fervor of the eternal uh, struggle, Kevin Matchstick once again finds the vagabond sorcerer Mirth and mysteriously, intru- and mysteriously intruding on his life. Despite all his fears and doubts, Kevin is the hero. The power with him is beyond his control and comprehension, but not beyond his heart. The heart that compels him to action to save the girl that knows him, but has never met him. So that's interesting. There's a lot being spilled here on the back about what's going to be going on. So we're setting up, you know, a little bit of what's, what's to come. Exactly. A lot of mystery. Page one is basically the last page of the previous issue, too. I don't know if it's exact, but it, I mean, it kind of it kind of picks you up right there. Yeah, it picks up because literally he's freezing in midair in between the two. So we're kind of following cinematically, following the uh, the action here. And yeah, it's great. We take a look at this. There's some Ooh. some really cool choices that were made. We were talking about, you know, again, depending on how much resolution they had and. You know, what was going on with coloring and, and storytelling and art in the time? Uh, I, I love some of the decisions that, that Matt made initially with this. And let's remember that he wasn't doing digital coloring. So there's, there's different choices that are made. But the, those crackle lines throughout the crash, um, you know. It, it's interesting, too, because I think it was maybe like they had just the color steps, you know? So you do have the black on one layer and then you have the color underneath. So it's most likely that that the crash, like the cracked glass look on the Kamiko was on the color layer. So if they're like not gonna reproduce that color layer, they're either like, okay, are we gonna redo this effect or are we gonna just go with, go with a gradient? And so I guess they were like, let's go with this gradient. Let's get a motion blur going. Yep. Yeah, I think I think sometimes there's just uh, you know sacrifices that that have to be made. Yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, those great sound effects there. We see uh, what I love on the uh, on this original here in the in the light, and it and it works well in both, right? I mean, uh, the colors yeah. in the reprint don't suffer for it, um, but we get kind of the run through of the yellow and the white for the shining bright light of the subway coming on. That great impact smash for the whoop with uh, yeah. the shadowy figure of Kevin hitting. Uh, interesting There's some color. like lens flare there yeah. in, the, in the wide shot. And some interesting color choices. I think it's neat where, you know, Matt's using white for the white glare of the light in the original. Um, we've got everything is washed in more of that yellow light. Kevin's face washed in, in yellow as opposed to being washed in bright white. Uh, yeah. The two different versions here. Yeah. And, um, interesting. And interesting, keeping keeping the color, you know, there's a there's a decision being made about the consistency of the color here, where the clackety-clack um, of the train approaching in the original is in green, and we're sticking with those orangey colors that uh, depict the light um, underneath the, in the reprint colors. Yeah, interesting. So Kevin's leapt out, I mean, being confronted with three of these strange beings. There's another thing I love here as well, just interesting interesting choices originally really different yeah and originally matt breaking out those um those thuddas right so kevin's there in the middle of the subway tracks train comes along it's clackety clackety clack thudda 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 as the train moves on through um and over top of him <laughs> and over top of him the original you know we just have uh, i think it's neat that you know, in the uh, in the reprint, we added in light coming from the windows of the subway. Oh yeah, and uh, and of course, in the original, I I'm torn about this. I mean, they both stand out, but I really kind of like the uh, the standout of that those red thuddas against the green, uh, where it's a little bit more subtle in the reprint. There. Yeah, I think it really comes off as showing a modernization of comic book coloring you know like the green does seem more like 80s or seems more like early comics you know whereas you know with this the purple and the red it just it seems a little more modern and i think that i think that's part of partly why they did the recoloring is to help modern readers you know be able to accept it or, or feel like i'm reading a modern book versus i'm clearly reading something from the 80s, which is where, how I like it. But yeah, <laughs> I like seeing the, the original choices. Well, we talked about, of course, you know, like we're, we're, <laughs> we're all like baby ducklings imprinting our, on the first thing that we've, uh, that we've run into on something. True, it's true. You get the same thing with bands as well. People are like, uh, I've met enough people who are like, oh, yeah, ever since Sid Barrett left Pink Floyd, I hate them. They're not the same band. It's like, okay, <laughs> it's true. I would but... tell them you're wrong. Uh, well, they're not the same band. They're a better band. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. City era is good, too. Two each. I've two got each. a bike. I can uh, ride it if you like. Okay, yeah. This <laughs> Studiously, I, stu I studiously or pointedly tried to like Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd, and it's good. Yeah. It's got a point. His solo stuff is, is interesting, too, but um, I'll, I'll take the I'll take the water, Roger Waters and post... Uh, and, and Gilmore eras. Yeah, they just got better and polished. And so this so year, Kevin like survived it. And he's like, he doesn't even know it at first. All he can think about is his cherry Cokes. Yeah. I mean, he's still like, Oh man, that was, 
terrible and you know coming to this coming to that realization wait a minute um you <laughs> wait, know my clothes are all tattered <laughs> but yeah. i'm okay um and we use that as a great so i mean he goes into the subway um thinking this was all a dream and right. now he's got this other instance without this mirth character around um you know that's repeated and physical proof so to speak i think we're yeah. still going to have a hard time bringing him in uh these here i mean again some different color choices we go on over to the sticks hotel and casino and um on the opposite side of the chessboard uh we've got uh the umbrus bright discussing with uh, some of the grackle flints um you know what's uh that that now that he's awakened and i'm gonna have to bring this closer here so i can see here um yeah they really got the digital lens flares and stuff working on this on the new coloring yeah definitely but talking about how hey don't don't be sure that he's he's dead and we start getting these these hints to something more beyond just even being a hero uh because the umbra sprite mentions he probably doesn't realize who he really is so that's laying a little bit of a seed there also. Like, what, what do you mean who he really is? Okay, so right. he's been pulled into this eternal struggle, or he's being drafted, as it were, by, by Mirth, but who he really is? And, um, and also that the train probably barely phased him. So they're keeping an eye to see if he comes out. And uh, Piet, one of the Grackle Flint, says, I still find that it's hard to believe that a subway train at full speed couldn't and the Umbra Sprite says, I know, and at one time it would have done the job, but once he encountered the world mage, the power awakened swiftly in him. Um, right. Throughout all this, the Umbra Sprite's face, you know, always pointedly in shadow, right? In shadow in that second and third panel. And then even when we get a chance to have light on his face, covered by a hand, hand covering, uh, you know, shadowing the details of the face there, which is a neat touch. Yeah. And, and uh, here is where I was saying they got rid of that green background. They, they basically remove that green everywhere it occurs. And I wonder if also, I mean, not just the color choices there, there's a lot of texture sometimes in the background. And I oh, think so, it's yeah. just, as you said, when you're dealing with your different layer color separations, some of those things, and we're going to come up to a panel where it really shows, some of those things were just like, okay, are we really going to go through and reproduce that? Because are we gonna, yeah. we're going to have to add it all back in again. I think it's an interesting decision to make the room as they're discussing in panel three. You almost get this neat silhouette effect. It's just, you know, it's a white background. You have the windows in this purpley gray. You have the, the sun or, you know, whatever light is coming through the windows reflected off the floor in that purpley gray in the original. And everybody's in shadows, right? The desk is in shadows, the grackle flints, the umbra sprite. And the room has been really brought to life in more of a typical, okay, we're looking at a room, right? The color outside, it looks like it. Uh, we've got this bluish color coming in through the windows. We've got like sunlight hitting a floor in the reflections. It's become more natural, I guess, more naturalistic. Well, to me, it also kind of changes the layout because um, in, in the, in the Kamiko, this is an open panel you know, mm -hmm. what they call an open panel with no borders, which creates a different flow to the page. And with the new coloring, I feel like it closes the panel. So it turns this open panel, which kind of brings you in this like wide shot. 
it kind of cl- closes it into like this is the room, which um, is maybe something I don't necessarily agree with. However, you know, maybe because they always do say like uh, have one open panel per page or something like that or, or per spread, it adds uh, it adds a certain flow and uh, you know, they close it off in the new one. That's that's their prerogative. But yeah, um, interesting, interesting, interesting choice. But um, yeah, yeah so let's let's yeah, let's keep on going forward here. And I think we're also kind of getting a little bit more into the delineation of the Grackle Flints personally. You know, there's Emil, there's Piet, and we're kind of learning a little bit more uh, about maybe how some have different abilities and some there's a hierarchy to their right the five and, of them and different and different personalities. Even you know, and we'll see that some disagree. There's more dissension and disagreement among some of them than others. But yeah, they each have their own distinct personality and um, can at times, you know, be sand in the Vaseline uh, for the whole experience. Um, So let's see here, we move on. The conversation continues and the Umbra Sprite mentions they should have kept better track of Mirth's movements. Now Matchstick, and here's a strong statement, Matchstick is now beyond any harm this world has to offer. And, um, you know, we're going to await your brother's report. If he is alive, then we'll have to arrange for some harm that comes from beyond this realm. So we're hearing, you know, there's a bit of a raising the stakes here while Kevin makes his way back out. Um, Just some small artistic notes here. Nothing major here. Some color decisions and changes. Again, I think just dimensionalizing the subway as Kevin comes out thinking to himself for sure and uh now we have whereas the subway station was empty no people around at all when he got onto the train and we had discussed that earlier you know does that was that just you know artistically easier has he you know it's it's nice to play with concepts that come later in the series maybe he was slipping into in between realms a little bit here uh but there's a woman here who sees this guy just come up along the uh, tracks and just (laughs) climb out of the subway tracks uh, and fainting (laughs) So um, cute. Um, and he's, this is where he's thinking about, you know, what is he going to say um, about work, you know, calling into it. Yeah, talk. what's he going to tell Cooch? Yeah, Cooch, who I think I mentioned last time, I think is probably a call out to Bill Cuccinata uh, from uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, for Some sure. neat choices here uh, in the reprint. You know, we see, the, we see the smoke kind of digitized and blurred, giving it that smoky yeah. feel. Yeah, very much different. And, um, and then he's just kind of, he comes out of the sewer, out of the sewer, out of the subway, and there's there's this grackle flint watching him. Yep, just like they said, and, you know, and God, I need a cherry Coke, right? So this is all, you know, what am I, what am I supposed to tell my boss? I need a cherry Coke. And now they're saying, hey, um, everybody's being sent off to take care of what they need to take care of. I'm going to begin arrangements on how to deal with him immediately. Uh, meanwhile, you two hit the streets. We've got to up our efforts on locating the Fisher King. And uh, the first mention of that, right? First mention of the Fisher King. And now we get it brought forward, tying into that whole, you know, mythical treasure trove. And, uh, and how you were talking about the, you know, this side of the chessboard. And, you know, they're really using the chessboard uh, <clears throat> to show, like, how things are going. And he hands him the king. And he snaps it. Right. And I the mean, and here we've even got play. them. I think this chessboard showed up in the previous uh, issue as well. And so they're sitting there playing. We've got that dark versus, right. you know, dark versus light battle going on. 
and yeah, and talking about that uh, the Fisher King can change shaped, but no matter what form he takes, the king will always be lame. And there's some interesting, these two pages have some interesting differences in the color choices oh, wow, yeah. that were made here. Um, whether it's just the background, uh, the coloring being used on, uh, on the close-up on the Umbra Sprite's face there, and the background. Again, I think this is another one of those cases where you've got this kind of almost herringbone pattern in the background on the red in the original, and it's been made into a smoother color, darker color uh, in the reprint. And I think the colors have been changed to kind of to kind of help the story focus, the attention focuses more in on that, uh, helps the Fisher King figure, you know, that the Fisher King stand in, the King chess figure pop. Right. He breaks off a leg. Yep. And uh, Kevin makes his way. We've got, so there's another interesting decision here with wow. this top panel where Kevin's in the background on the phone calling into work while a waitress is putting food down on the table. And in the original, you know, she's in this blue uniform. Kevin is really in the backdrop, muted in the dark. You get a lot of depth here, but all the attention, you know, all the all the dialogue is happening in the background. All of the visual focus is in the foreground on this waitress. And I think that was alleviated a little bit color-wise in the reprint where um, the waitress's outfit is kind of this reddish brown, kind of matching the uh, the wall on the other side. And, you know, we're focusing the attention now more on Kevin in the background. He's more lit. And um, anyways, I just thought that was an interesting choice there. Yeah, I think cinematography, cinematographically, if you were to think about this like in a film, it might have like focused on her setting the, setting it down and the cherry Coke, and then you would like rack focus to Kevin, you know, whereas the food would be out of focus and then Kevin would be in focus right when he started sing, uh, talking. So uh, that's a pretty, a very cinematic panel there, I think. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting way of looking at the impact that color can have on where you draw your focus inside Absolutely. that panel. And then this next one here, another one of those open panels that, uh, mm -hmm. that gets closed off by the addition of the, uh, of the background color um, of mm -hmm. Kevin sitting down. Yeah, I'm not sure anything is added by that, so, but you know, yeah, an interesting choice nonetheless. Maybe just for continuity's sake. But I think like with the shadow, you develop that open panel, and then in the next panel, when you know the the major background change occurs from the red and white to the blue background, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, and I think there's something you're going to see on these next panels here, where uh, when Mirth first appears in uh we've just got this flash of green you know kevin's about to take a sip of his coke got this he doesn't even get any coke that's the real tragedy of this page yeah i think he's the true inspiration for hudson for hudson hawk and the whole cappuccino issue in in that movie i don't know if you've ever seen that guy goes through the entire movie trying to just get a cappuccino and every time he gets a cappuccino something happens before he can take a sip oh no i haven't, I haven't seen that um Anyway, so we've got this purplish background, right? There's, there's a lot of great color stuff going on in this page and the next. The purplish background behind Kevin and that splash of green. And the choice in the reprint, you know, again, the entire panel kind of reflects this green coming in. Um, it's reflected off the glass. And then finally, Mirth sitting here looking smug. Kevin's, you know, oh no reaction. 
and, and I can understand completely why they probably got rid of this striped, heavily patterned background <laughs> from the first one and just replaced yes. it. That's a busy it's a, it's a bit distracting, whereas, again, like you say, guiding the eye and the focus of your panel to the two main characters and not necessarily on this overdeveloped background. Right, and the colors changing and the flesh tones and everything, we can see how, I mean, you really can focus in on the characters where, where they kind of do just blend into the entire panel in, right. in the original. But Kevin is obviously, you know, not thrilled uh, to, be, to be seeing Mirth, who makes this, you know, we get this little witty comment about, hey, you're looking well this morning, Kevin, aside from your clothes, that is, or your wardrobe. And um, I got to say, man, these this early the early mat work and these two side views, as far as my own art being inspired by Matt, okay, here on this spread as well, like in panel four and even panel three, these just these eyebrows with that's all black, like the straight line or, or curvy line for the eyes and the eyebrow is such a elemental thing that Matt does and something that I really copped early in my art life and, and especially these mouths too which are nothing in the front the cheek lines with just like a little line man nobody does that but it's so effective on some of these like smug looks and and on on these like furrowed brows you know and I I think that's something that I think maybe you know any artist does and especially if you're drawing yourself in your panels, Matt must have had some like a mirror or, or something in front of him, you know, where you look, he looks, you know, at his face and, and you try you try to figure it out. Just like how they, you know, Jim Carrey said he sat in front of a mirror for half his life making faces to try to figure out his impressions, you know, in order to draw himself like this in so many ways, you don't need uh, like an action figure to figure out and, you know, figure out, poses or, or, you know, one of these humans, you, you, he can just look at his face and take photos or, or, you know, have a mirror while you're drawing. So it's awesome. Would he have thought of that if he was drawing someone else? Probably because you see it in some of those early comics of his, but. But, but to your point, it amazes me. It's, it, this is one of those things and it carries through in his work to this day. Um, the amount of line work that, that, Matt Wagner does to carry attention, emotion um, mm. in, in a facial reaction is remarkably minimal. And yeah, I don't remember, I, I don't remember seeing anything like it beforehand that you could convey so much with so little. Um, yeah. especially when Love these that. came out, you know, this was still, maybe we were just coming off the heyday or in the middle of the heyday of, you know, the Burn Claremont X-Men. I'm going to, guys, I'm going to keep referencing that because that was my, you know. <laughs> that's your cornerstone. Yeah, that's my cornerstone. And, you know, that was, you know, yeah, I read a bunch of other stuff, but I was a Marvel kid and that was the era. But that artwork was very, it was very different from this, right? And so, again, just thinking about what Matt says at the very beginning of this, talking about choosing the tools that you're going to hunt your prey with and making a deliberate decision, um, he's really making some very definite decisions in a different direction from what was, you know, big, what I recall as being big at that time. Um, and the minimalisticness of how he chose to say a bow and arrow, you know? So that's super minimal, and that's what we're getting. Minimal to do the maximal. And so oh, here man. we go, um, you know, 
Kevin does not want to have this discussion. He says, um, you know, I've got a few questions for you, you know, a few questions, Captain Guru, and we're going to find a place more private. <laughs> and um, Instant Mirth pushes him off into an alley, says, coming up, instant privacy. And Kevin's like saying, hey, wait, just, uh, and the next thing we know, he finishes his sentence at the top of a skyscraper, uh, just a minute. He's like, what? Yeah, and he is not thrilled. I mean, we've just got this shot. No. And I think another, uh, this is great to look at side by side as well mm -hmm. here, how these go. In many ways, the biggest thing, uh, there's a lot of coloring decisions being made here, right? And so that's that's fine. Um, but Mirth really, Mirth's face is muddy and almost a little sinister in that pose that he's got there. I get he's just standing there. He's just, they've just done the, the teleportation. He's almost got that pose. He's almost got that uh, Samantha from Bewitched pose kind of thing going on. The arms crossed, uh -huh. you can almost, or Genie rather, the arms crossed. You can almost imagine him having just done a head nod and blink, they're there at the top of a building. But his face <laughs> is really muddy in the original and you can see that they've really lightened it up it's still sparse details there, but uh, you can see him much more clearly. Agreed. What about the previous? What about the previous page? Would you mind showing yeah, that up sure. there a little bit? There's a lot of, yeah. Okay, so the texture is still there in the alleyway in the second to last panel. We lose but that not open nearly frame as again. much. Yeah, we did. Yeah. But that's not too I much think change another, on that one. Yeah, I think that's another decision. I mean, there's just been a very big decision on how are we going to show magic happening around mirth? And I think it just, this is just a matter of taste. Um, mm. I really like the crunchy line art version from the original. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the more gradient kind of using the colors for shape itself uh, to define the light feature of the magic in the reprint is it is it, it's cool i mean there's there's uh i mean i think that's it arguably one might say it looks more realistic to how one might expect magical flashes of light to appear right because there isn't going sure. to be lines running through something so it is it's a very cool but very different way of showing that magic happening yeah. than, than what we saw in the i episode. still think they could have preserved that open panel and still done the newer thing but it still looks good and like you know how Brent, um, Brennan calls them knockouts? There's some of those like white lines through the middle where they knocked out some of the original lines, maybe. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. I got to revisit that, too. I keep it's, uh, you know, like there are some math concepts or philosophy concepts that sometimes as soon as you get it, it starts to slip away. I've got to revisit the concept of knockouts, how that works. Um, oh, yeah. That was another well, it's basically kind of taking the like black lines and making them a color or making them white or making them like all blue or all green in order to kind of mess with the the, the um, feel of it or the depth or something like that. Cool. Brandon's awesome at it. Okay, so oh, before we go through all of this here, um, I'm going to take a moment and we're going to do a bit of a sidebar. But, um, you know, Mirth, just wondering, you know, still not getting it, saying, hey, but what could be more private? And we get the reveal that... Kevin cannot stand heights. He's got vertigo. Get me down now. Um, so this here hits a lot. So let's think just about the reluctant hero, right? We have got, we, we don't just have a reluctant hero about somebody who just doesn't want to accept what's going on around them. And this is, hey, am I dreaming? Is this a dream? This is, this is crazy. 
Um, we've also got, we've got a fear of heights. And I don't think it's a gigantic leap to go from fear of heights to fear of success. Um, uh, and so fear of heights to fear of success. So this, this fires off a few things. Ages ago, I remember reading a book. I think it was called, I've got some uh, notes here I'm going to refer to. Um, I think it was from a hundred years of uh, psychotherapy and we're still not well yet. Um, <laughs> so, so great book. And there's a point that is raised and mind you, these are, these are two therapists talking, uh, making this analogy here, but one of them raises a point about a bullfighter, Menelet, and I'm going to share something here. So this is Manolet. And Manolet, um, his contribution to bullfighting was being able to, and you can see how close the bull is to him in this picture on the left. Yeah. He was known for being able to stand insanely still while a bull passed very close by. And rather than um, giving passes separately, he was able to remain in one spot and link four or five consecutive passes together into a very compact series. Now, look, I'm not condoning bullfighting. You know, it is, it's a brutal sport. Um, it's an amazing sport in its own way. So, I mean, think what you will of bullfighting in and of itself. But here's this guy who, that by the age of 12, had already, um, you know, made a name for himself. And uh, the following year, when he was 13, he made his public debut in a, uh, in a school of bullfighting. Uh, now, he died in uh, 1947. He was gored in the upper right leg uh, as he killed the fifth bull of the day. It's now believed that actually he died from a, uh, a blood transfusion of the wrong type. But there's a story that Manolet, when he was nine years old, was supposedly very, a very frightened little skinny boy who hung around his mother in the kitchen. And then later he becomes the greatest bullfighter of the age, a symbol, the, the very symbol of at least for certain generations and culture of pure machismo. Um, and so psychology will say, so this is, you know, coming from there, psychology will say, yes, he became a great bullfighter because he was such a puny little kid that he compensated by be, being a macho hero. And that would be, Aldarian psychology. Take your deficiency, your inferiority, and you convert it to superiority. But suppose you took it the other way. So first of all, one thing, right? This him hiding behind, right? This great figure. You wouldn't imagine this, this guy, this epitome of machismo and just danger hiding behind his mother's skirt, right? So this one might argue, here's where this whole fear of success kind of analogy thing comes in for me. And they mentioned, suppose you take it the other way and you read a person's life backwards. Then you say, Manolet was the greatest bullfighter. And he knew that inside his psyche, he sensed at the age of nine that his fate was to meet thousand pound black bulls with great horns. Of course he fucking well held on to his mother because he couldn't hold that capacity. At nine years old, your fate is all there and you can't handle it. It's too big. It's not that he was inferior. He had a great destiny. Um, and there's an additional line uh, relation made about this kind of thing that, you know, uh, from day one, a tree is the same tree all the way through, right? A zebra is a zebra from the very first day. So um, I just, I think when we take a look, 
at, let me stop sharing here. When we take a look at Kevin's fear of heights, his fear of success, as, as at least as I see it, um, I just think it's interesting to think that this is in many ways a resistance there because there's a part of him that knows what's it. He is the hero. He's always the hero. He's just not ready to face it. Um, a neat sideline. He, he is literally. He is literally going to great heights. He will literally, you know, reach the top of uh, of what it is to be a hero. So to be here and to even have any fears like this is is um you know opposite of what we think of when we think of a hero. Like Superman's not afraid of heights or. Wolverine's not afraid of blood or something, you know? So like, it's like, it's interesting. Yeah. And also it's a, it's a great way to develop a character. And it lays in a great piece also when we think about the entire character's arc, because later on, we're going to have a very different scene at the top of a skyscraper. So this lays in something very early on where we get a good contrast between, okay, here we see Kevin on top of a very tall building freaking out. Later on, we're going to see, the same kind of dilemma confronting him. Um, one thing that is kind of neat that I discovered here, I'm going to share though, when I was researching Manalette a little bit, was, um, let's see if I can, so let me go forward here. So uh, one of my favorite pieces of art uh, is Salvador Dali's Hallucinogen Toreador. I've and seen this in person. Yeah, it's, and it's huge, right? Florida. I mean, look at this here. Yeah, this is a huge. great example of the scale. I think it's, what, roughly maybe 30 feet tall. I can't imagine yeah, the what it must have been like coming up close, painting the detail, and then backing out. Because, uh, as, as you know, having seen it, this is a, a portrait of a Toreador. You know, with all these things going on, um, if you take a look at it here, as a matter of fact, right here, you've got the shadow under the nose. You've got the mouth here. Um, right. You've got the the hat here, um, the tie, the green tie. We've got the red cape over the shoulder, the rose, shoulder kind of coming off here. So the uh, this was actually a, uh, Manalette was actually the Toreador, was the inspiration for this. And actually down here, we've got the bull um, and the horns, I think here, we've kind of break it out here. So you can see the head, tie, the shirt, and the cape. So I just thought it was interesting that uh, having having loved this piece for ages, it's a magnificent piece to find out that uh, that Manalet was actually the inspiration for it. That's awesome. Yeah, I will say um, we used to live in St. Petersburg, Florida, and they have the U.S.'s only Dolly Museum there, and they have that piece there. And to see it in person, because like you know we were on a tour, and the tour guide was like telling us about it. You look at it, and you don't see that. But then as soon as they elucidate that and they tell you like, you know, that boob is actually a nose and then it's the eyes, you know, and, and it really starts coming out. And then you're able to like get close and see like the bull and, and see the face there of the bull that's really there. And they're talking about the atoms too, that, and, and they, the feet, you know, there's so much that they bring out to show you. It's, it's really amazing. What an amazing piece. It's like looking at a stereogram and finally having the 3D image pop out in front of you. I mean, it's just, yes. you know, life is full of these amazing 
moments where you get changes of perspective and mm -hmm. yeah, something that you're looking at. And I think probably the first time you look at it, the first thing that probably strikes you is these shadowy figures of the Venus de Milo, you know, moving forward. Right. Those become very easy to focus on and all these disparate elements. It's uh, yeah. Anybody, if you haven't, if you, uh, if you're ever down in Florida around St. Petersburg uh, and they've got a That's brand new it. one there now, brand new uh, museum. I saw it in the old one. I've seen pictures of the new one. Oh, okay, yeah. That's probably where I saw it with, like, the bean, the big glass, like, uh, flowing bean-looking thing, and there's, like, an outdoor garden. It's beautiful. No, it was a tiny, yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't much to, to speak of. When I went there, it was a small, as I recall, one-story building that was just... Oh, um, wow. Okay, so cool. So uh, we let's uh, pick <laughs> back up here. Sidebar. Um, we pick back up here, and Murth goes, okay, okay, better. And there's also some interesting small... I mean, these are small changes... Um, that uh, that happen here, we kind of, again, I think the jogger, right? In the reprint, the jogger, who's another, we got somebody in the foreground, very colorful, very in focus. Again, I kind of muted out, allows us to focus back in on the action between right. Kevin That's and Murph nice there. Yeah. And, uh, and we see some similar things here, and probably just because details were probably lost, where these figures here in the background of this great Wagner silhouette shot kind of just become covered in this person laying on the, uh, on the ground here. This is somebody laying on a blanket disappears completely in the, uh... but what I thought was interesting, we were talking about colors is this purple and red kind of colors continue here, you know, uh, between, between the two of them. And actually we, we see it here. We had already seen it on the previous one. In the original, we've got purple. It kind of blends here where it's meeting this angry red coming off of Kevin and uh, with the purple backdrop behind Mirth. And um, again, this entire background space behind Kevin, you know, changing to that red to kind of denote his, his anger and rage in the moment. At least that's how I read it. But these colors sure. continue here where you can see, again, we've got that red of rage and kind of this purpley color here, you know, behind Kevin and the purpley color behind Mirth in the original. And that all kind of just gives way to a, um, you know, to, to this kind of muted background, this muted green background in the reprint. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's probably, again, that's maybe another one of these things where you're a young artist and you really want to make and do it like, like how we said in the beginning, you're trying to, to, to use everything at your facility to make it different and new and guide the reader and make it something fresh and fun. But it's like, we don't necessarily need that because there's already the facial features. There's already the actual words. It, you can clearly tell it's two different people talking. So then the colors is like a, a fourth thing that's kind of like getting the same feel across. Uh, now, would I have gone with that muted green? I might not have, but... You know, Jeremy Cox, I, I respect your work. I feel like I'm constantly dogging you for your recoloring, but it's like, you know, you're going to you're gonna hate the engineer that remastered your favorite album because it doesn't sound the same, but, you know, it sounds better. But it's still like you like the original. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I mean, the reprints, um, I think as we go through this, we're going to be constant. It's it's the risk of comparing things, right? It's the, yeah, you, you got you to gotta pro and con it out. 
yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong. And I think there's some great decisions made in the reprints as well. I don't, I don't know, though. I'll tell you what. I like the vibrance and the dynamic choices made in the original. As you can see, you've, you've still got the different colors behind Mirth and Kevin throughout the middle of this page here as we trade off in their dialogue, even to the point where you can see the color behind Kevin cool, literally cool as he changes state. Right. It's red behind him as he's yelling, you know, why the hell didn't you tell me there were three of those things? So let's get back to the grackle flint. So now they're down on the ground. Kevin is yelling at Mirth because yeah. he's already had a run-in with one grackle flint. Now he just had a run-in with three and it's kind of comedic as well. You know, now, you know, why the hell didn't you tell me there were three of those things? And Mirth says, but there aren't. You know, what do you mean there aren't? I, there are five. And Kevin just cools off immediately and the color follows him. The look on his face follows and he's just like, yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. That is a, that is a great storytelling technique there. That is unfortunately not continued through. Agreed. Even if they lightened the green up a little bit to kind of show that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's not necessary. It's certainly not necessary because everything else in the panels with the faces and all that is is carrying it. Okay, so let's, uh, how about we move on to the next page here. Let's uh, zoom through here a bit. Although I'll say, so why don't you take this part here, introduce, we get our first sight of just a much loved character here. Yes, yes we do. We um, we kind of go from a, uh, a ground view up here. We see this red car, we see this lady and Edsel. The it looks like what could be a grackle flint coming out of the door, and we see just a, a great car. And I think we, when when speaking with Matt, he just like looked. He loved this car. He loved the Etzel, right? Yeah, and I think you know I recently finished uh, Devil's Odyssey, and I had to after I took a quick look at the. The sh- so no spoilers here, but after I took a quick look at the shuttle ship, I think it was used in issue one or issue two of Devil's Odyssey. The first thing I had to do because of some choices on the shuttle uh, was to pull up pictures and look up, uh, not look here in, in, in the comic, but look up photos of Edsel's. Because I think that whether it's the Edsel specifically, whether it was a small Easter egg kind of stylistic call out, you know, to mm-hmm. Edsel, or it was just that muscle car kind of look it's definitely there with some of the fins and the styling of that uh of yeah. that uh, shuttle coming down but it's just a good looking car yeah yeah it's a beautiful car and um so this it kind of introduces this b plot and starts to really ramp up the flow of the of the issue because we're kind of bouncing back and forth between two rising actions like uh, one rising like action, action, and then to a rising like realization of of you know information that's happening between um, Kevin and Mirth. Right, because we have this scene happening here. No words, no framing, as goes through the entire thing. No, no narrative, no captions to to frame us in what's happening here. Meanwhile, you know, Kevin is getting. Um, Kevin, we get we enter exposition land here. You know, on the yeah. on the right hand side of this panel here, uh, Mirth. You know. Um, Mirth telling him, go on, ask. Kevin asking, why me? And Mirth saying, because there has awakened in you a power, a power that will make you discover the hero you are destined to be. And Mm -hmm. 
Kevin starts to discovered. ask a question, right? And Kevin starts he's literally <laughs> right there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And Kevin says, you know, but why? And he gets interrupted, and he, um, you know, gets this splinter in his hand. And I think I've. Uh, I'm going to try and bring this up really close here. How do you like my really janky zoom? Um, That's nice. <laughs> so. What I've always thought, again, coming back, having read these after reading the end of the series, um, what always struck me about this is, uh, I'm sorry, that's foreshadowing the bat. Maybe I'm reading too much into sure. it, but that splinter Definitely. and the way it pushes into the palm of his hand and indents a little bit looks like a tiny little bat to me. Yes, it does. Absolutely does. And, you know, I was thinking... Cause like something he could uh, he could do later, just like charge that little splinter and then be like, you know, like that would be cool. Yeah, like it would have almost been a little cool if it had a little like green spark come off it for a second. Yeah, although he might have at this uh, point, yeah. been, you know, you know, leave, leaving yeah, it up. It's he's amazing. still just dating. You're got, yeah. you're 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 getting into 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 book three territory by the time you're yeah uh, for sure yeah. a little bit of the end of book I guess uh, in a little bit of the end of the other books. So, and here we continue this story. We've just got this young woman following. Now we know that it is clearly a grackle flint that, uh, that she's following. And he goes into this alleyway and just, again, just pure visual storytelling. You know, what's going on here? This storyline is building as, you know, Kevin asks, hey, so explain this. How do I get hit by a subway train this morning without a scratch? And this afternoon I get a splinter and... Mm -hmm. You know, without going into the actual dialogue of it, Kevin understanding that, you know, the power decides when it's going to arise. He can't mm -hmm. call this power. It only arises when it's being used for the struggle. Um, all news. And again, mm -hmm. yeah, he, he, he really doesn't take full control of the power until the third book. Like, it's it is always kind of like he's at the mercy of it he he wants it but he doesn't really get a full grasp of it and i think it only it doesn't come it comes partly through learning his power but also partly be, when be, becoming to a certain point in age and in growth where where he can actually call on it fully what do you think of this as an analogy for the artist's journey Oh, I, I think that's, I think that's great as well. You know, like, cause some like, uh, like, um, writer's block, like my last, you know, the, I do these bi-monthly comics for next panel press. You can find us at next panel press on Instagram, I, but I didn't mean to have a post there, but like my last comic, I really started to write and I felt like an impotent creator at this point. I was like, I can't think of anything. Like I have this idea of where the next one should go, but like my hand won't do anything, won't do anything. And then the deadline was looming. And I eventually just made a comic about writer's block. And I was like, I just have to, I have to turn, turn my inaptitude and inadequacies into the topic. You know, I think it's, this is perfect. It's like it, it you can't always call on it immediately. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Turning your, yeah. And in that case, you turned your, your lemons into lemonade is, you know, to, as he mentions the Reader's Digest here, to use that kind of a phrase um, for it. Uh -huh. I love these panels here, though, actually, also. Just the way this page is broken up, you've got, um, you know, the open pa open frame here, and then you've got this window pane of four little panels. 
and mirth splitting, being split across two. Um, you know, it looks cool. It's, um, why do something like this, right? I mean, because typically, I mean, as a, as a standard, just, okay, I'm just reading comics here. I'd, I'd expect that to be one panel. It looks great this way, but uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, what are your thoughts on this decision here? I think it's, um, I think it's aesthetic an aesthetic choice to have the four panels there. You want the four panels to, to have that, that flow of your comic because while the bottom is still two images, I still believe it's four like actions. Like you see him there talking, you see it goes back to Kev and then you see kind of Mirth's face and then your next move is from his face you know, into his hand in the words. So like, if we're talking, your eyes would still make like four moves there. So I think it's still to kind of delineate like kind of, kind of your, the way that you would move in a normal conversation kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's just really, I, I love little details like that sometimes visually. They just, yeah. and then without, Oof, I'm going to, I can't wait to get to the second page on this year, but you know, we just continue to follow uh, this young lady. I mean, well, Edsel, let's just call her who she is. We continue yeah, yeah, to yeah. follow Edsel as uh, she follows into this alleyway. But this is really um, Matt taking these, um, these silhouettes of his to another level. And this is one of those things that really gets lost. And what is that? Is that Zipatone? Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things that really gets lost in the oh in the reprint, unfortunately. Yeah, it's so crazy because they're because they're like different gauges, I believe it's called for like the different character. So like Murphs is a wider gauge, uh, Kevin is a smaller gauge. It oh, and actually they they both are, um, you know, they go from smaller to bigger, bigger to smaller. What's I called? Uh, um, it's escaping me right now, but uh, um, yeah, man, it's just. It's just so of a time, so 80s. Um, we've talked to Matt before about these different duo show, duo tone papers that he was using. And, and you know, you cut them out to these forms and you actually stick them directly to the thing, to the page. Oh, man. It's it just, so crazy. It just gives it this neat dimensionality, you know, with Mirth's leg wrappings, Kevin's Love bolt. It. Um, it, on the screen, I'm sure it's not nearly doing it justice or um, kind of how those patterns work out. You know, it's a little, it gets a little grainy and hard to see. Um, yeah, the still, only thing that's better in the new stuff is like how Kevin's eyes pop. You kind of lose that with the Zipatone, Duotone. Mm -hmm. um, but it's fine. I, I love the, the, the dot patterns. They're so cool. They're so 80s. They're so of this amazing time. Yeah, I mean, it's a neat thing. I mean, I, look, the, the silhouettes, the pure silhouettes work great. Like you said, Kevin's eye, I think, pops better. Uh, I mean, you can't even really, at least at this distance here, it's hard to see it even in that fourth panel. It's hard to see it. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, we get back into some exposition here with Mirth laying it all out. You know, who mm -hmm. the heck are these bad guys, right? There's the Umbra yeah. Sprite, you know, uh, these Grackle Flints aren't the threat. They're lieutenants controlled by a greater evil, a vast darkness, the Umbra Sprite. Uh, the Grackle Flints are brothers, and he's their father. Uh, he's far, and then, you know, we get this name check, right? He's Attila, Herod, Nero, Hitler, and Stalin realized in one, 
His plottings are subtle or direct as need be, but they're always insidious. He strives even now to destroy what is light and good in us. Um, so we're, you know, look, we're in the second, we're in the second uh, issue here. We need to, we, we need to continue setting the board. Who the heck right, is exactly. everybody? What are they about? Yeah. And uh, this, Edsel's uh, continues uh, to turn and ends up in a dead end alleyway. And uh, this Grackle Flint comes out with a cinder block while mm-hmm. the guys continue to talk. And um, Kevin is educated that uh, the old guy in the alley who was being mugged and killed, you know, why was he killed? Because there are certain people who are naturally drawn into the eternal struggle. Uh, others have the rare talent to recognize Kevin for who he is. They see the hero within him, and that old gentleman was one of these people. He was simply killed. He was killed simply because someday he may have encountered you, known you, and tried to help. And you can see, it's crazy. yeah, that's not that Kevin doesn't take that nicely. You know, doesn't seem to like that news. That's a heavy bit of information to have. Yeah, it really is. And I then, still, and then that just gets you thinking, like in another time another time frame could he have saved him and then would that have helped him on his journey like what information and what has that had that guy known to help kevin that is now completely lost and like what uh you know well to ben's point i mean i, I mean the guy knew what a grackleflint was which is rare and unique in and of itself when you consider that the only other person we meet who who already knows is mirth True. So narrative convenience. I mean, sometimes you just have to chalk things up to narrative convenience. Um, you know, we needed to get it on yeah. out there. Um, yeah, but it we, does, know, we, don't, we don't know. It does raise an interesting question. So let's uh, keep on moving here. Right, so we're back in on this Etzel flow. He throws it under her. He lifts the car up. And, and so she gasses it, but those back tires aren't on the ground anymore. He's like, he's got her. And we've gone through, what is this? This is four or five pages now of just sheer visual storytelling about this. We, we still have no idea what's going on other than for some reason, um, you know, she's chosen to follow him mm-hmm. and he clearly noticed it and has now decided rather than just to get away, rather than just to go by on bailing, he has chosen, it has chosen to... Um, to do this to her, to put her into a situation exactly. where now she is trapped in this in this alleyway, and um, Kevin and Mirth continue with saying up, and now we start getting into that resistance, right? The um, the resistance yeah. to everything. Mirth saying, "Hey, I must say, Kevin, you're taking this all very well. Who says I'm taking any of it? You don't believe it? I didn't say that either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then why play along? Until I see a little more, let's not call me a player." merely an active spectator uh-huh. he kind of wants his cake and eat it too right i mean he can't deny it um yeah. you've got to figure uh and actually we'll get this in into this for a second and something that is that is set on the uh on the next page here um but so now mirth flashes some more magic and asks kevin to st- try to tell him something and it is also neat because doing these two parallel It's um. This almost works better in comics. You can you can see this being done in comics and in like TV or movies, right? Where you have, usually it's done with action, where you will have quick cuts between one action scene and another action scene, whether they're par- parallel activities, whether they're meant to be, 
you know, mirroring each other or whether they're just mm-hmm. meant to be showing things hap- happening simultaneously like these do. The nice thing about Help the inside, rising action. Right. And in here in the yeah. comic, you can get away with having not any dialogue and a lot of dialogue. Whereas if you did this in a movie going back and forth, this here would really slow this down. Yeah. It feels, you know, this, all this dialogue would really break your momentum on this, but in a comic, you can get away with it. Um, mm. I, so I in my in my reading, I still kind of like speed up this talk. I still try to like you know like for me reading this, I start getting into it. And I'm like, dun, 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 you know, like you know, I, I really feel the rising action continuing. You know, it's like there's something you must tell me. Here we go, and then it's like, blam, you know. And we're rising to so something on, so. on both sides here, right? Because here mm-hmm. comes Edsel out. She's working and grabbing that bat out from underneath, and they're getting ready mm-hmm. to to show down yeah they are they're showing off right now and and she's holding that bat like i mean yes it looks like a baseball stance but it also looks like she's wielding a sword or wielding you know some sort of something other than a baseball bat yeah she's getting ready to crack somebody upside the head one way or another it's a weapon (laughs) i mean it is not a uh it, it might be reminiscent of a batter's stance but uh uh, she's getting ready to to take some action here, but uh, now mirth. And this is neat to see the two different, you know, yeah. styles of magic being portrayed here. Again, I, I think there's some some points, you know, for what Jeremy Cox did with, you know, just bringing that magic to life. And, sure. and again, they're just two different ways to do it. I love the yeah. crunch. And he original. kept the open panel finally. Yeah, but you know, so mirth floats up in the air. Kevin says, "Hey." get down here before someone else sees you. And he's told, uh, mm-hmm. no one can see me unless I want them to. Uh, adding back in to this whole level of, at some level, Kevin would be completely within his rights to think, oh, great. Now now I'm being told that nobody else can see. The- these are all... Right. I feel like I'm talking to myself over here. Everyone's right, well, yeah. And, and, and am I going crazy? Am I going around yeah. the bend? You know, accept it. Yeah. I don't even know if any of this is real. Maybe this is all just happening inside my head. Um, and then Mirth asks him, so tell me, why is someone with all the power you contain scared of heights? I'm sorry, but I find it all mm-hmm. quite silly, too. Really calling him out. Calling him out and wondering, why would you be afraid of heights? And there's a great visual storytelling here about answering that as we get Edsel making... Yeah, and this is not just a swing. She's like doing some just great moves. He comes lunging. She dodges out of his way, does some fancy work with the bat, and comes down with this slam on his head. It's just beautiful action here. Um, so and then different- she, you know, it knocks his hat off, and she look, and he looks at her, and she looks. I think she looks surprised to see that this is a gray bald man, and she's like, "Wait a second, yeah, look yeah. at that, dude. That's awesome. That now that is an improvement right there. Oh, you know, Matt's action and the way he do, does this white like movement is so good, but." Dang, Jeremy Cox did a great job. And I think that's just a testament to like some computer fades and stuff like that. But that looks amazing. Yeah, well, and, and you know, we go from this kind of everything in shadows, especially on that first panel, everything comes out of the shadows and we can really see 
Edsel, right? She's yeah. not just in this in this purplish kind of color. Uh, like you said, that whole action scene there where, um, yeah, she, she uh, we get this forward motion, you know, we get uh, so how good. opaque she is helping, you know, bring forward the action in time. Yeah, all yeah, very cool. So well done. I mean, it's, a, it's just a testament to how well it was established originally by Matt that they could develop it so, so well like that. Yeah, and so anybody Appreciate listening to the podcast awesome. here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, you know, especially the way we're going through these here, um, a, a lot of this, and I get this, sometimes I listen to, you know, podcasts that are also vodcasts that go heavily into talking about visuals. Um, do yourself a favor, you know, take a swing on over to YouTube and just bebop around if you have to. Just, uh, you don't have to listen to everything all over again, but just, you know, you gotta um, check this page out. Yeah, scrub, scrub forward and take a look at some of these side-by-sides. And then, uh, as this is all going on, as Mirth is asking Kevin, why are you afraid of heights? Uh, we get him roiling over in pain in he midair. Feels it. And then just dropping to the ground with a thud. Yeah, and again, I, I gotta give it to Jeremy on this one. This, this looks really good. This looks really, really cool. And um, the, hmm? the spheres and stuff. Yeah, the spears, the thud, just the kind of the motion. Even um, we get some of that dimensionality right here, even in the uh, even oh, in the yeah. tape, in the drapes there, instead of the marker work on the right hand side. Uh, but also, I like how this here, without anything being said, this is you know, why are you scared of heights? Why is anybody scared of heights? They could fall. Right. <laughs> and he does it immediately, and he's like, "Mirth, I freaking told you so." <laughs> no. Yeah, it's exactly. interesting too. It, it's it's such a cool thing too, because you know how mirth can feel these disturbances. It just, it just um, elevates and deepens his character and, and his empathy. You see that he's such an empathetic character. And I love the interplay you know, of, uh, of, of purple and green uh, in yeah. the original two, because, uh, you know, we know that purple becomes a very important color, especially in, uh, in the second book in, in hero defined. Um, mm -hmm. So now we continue with the uh, with the showdown, the Grackle Flint closing in on, grabbing Edsel by the throat, taking the bat. She swings one more time, even though he's got this hand like a vice around her throat. She yeah. takes a swing, he grabs it, and throws the bat away. Mm-hmm. And... Ooh. Yeah, would you anything... What, you want to point something just, out? Just, just, you know, it's foreshadowing, because that bat, obviously, is going to become so important. Ah, uh, but then we flash back. Oh, you got uh, yeah. That's a really that's really well done. He's like, "What's up, dude? What what happens?" And he's like, "I can feel it." What does he call it? This when, but now the pain clears and I begin to see, the sight. The sh he's getting the shining. Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. And he starts to, and so we get you know, uh, it happens again. One of those. So we're getting a payoff, right? We've already been told there are people out there who could connect with you and that the enemy is going to destroy because they might recognize you or help you in some way. At it happens some point. Again. Yeah. One of those I spoke to you of, those who will know you and join you is again at the mercy of a Grackle Flint. And I think these are, um, you know, it's interesting to see the motion blur decisions here uh, yeah. with, with the reprint. You know, again, I think it's all, I think it's all fine. Um, 
you know, Matt working with the tools that he had at the time, you know, we have a lot of those, what are, what are those called again? They're attention lines. What are those called when you're doing all those lines to pull action? Um, in? I mean, I feel like in anime, they call them like speed lines or motion lines. So mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, again, we knew Matt wasn't influenced by anime back in the, his early work. So it must be that. Yeah, and I mean, and even in old, like, even 1940s and earlier advertising, I mean, you would do those things around somebody to show shock, you know, yeah, amazement. I, don't, I guess around. I don't know the actual term. Yeah. Um, so. But this is, a, this is like, as far as art is concerned, the poses that these two characters have in this final panel, I mean, it's, it's tough for both of them. You know, you know Mirth is kind of like this, and the, the hand is like this, which is, like, such a weird thing to draw. And, and you know mirth up like this he's like uh and and kev's kind of like you know so this is a this is a tough panel this is this is you know these are hard motions and actions and angles to catch on these characters for sure i i, I think this is a panel i mean i think this is one of those panels where i just think matt's growth as an artist is is still evident i mean it's it, it's mm -hmm. raw but you take a look at like the definition and what's happening with kevin's face here and then kevin's face here um, yeah. I, I think we'd see this looking very differently done even a year later, even a year later uh, being done by, by Matt, this would, would come definitely. across very differently. And then finally, we end to be continued with that Grackle Flint spur coming on down as Edsel is trying to, uh, to hold him off being pushed down yeah. against the hood of the Edsel. Or Edsel. Wow. And Hey, the merchandising machine begins here. Yeah. Kamiko Mm -hmm. you know, a few people who proudly uh, post pictures of those uh, hanging mobiles sometimes with the mage on one side and Evangeline on the other. I don't have one, man. I want one. Kamiko. I remember, I remember seeing, I think, one of those up at my uh, local comic store back in the day when I was uh, probably even before I started reading Mage, again, because I picked up on it later in the series. Out of the end of it, mm -hmm. just initially, it just didn't catch my attention, didn't trip my trigger. Um Boy, was that to change. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then another uh, thing here, we've got uh, God's Law is Her Law. Uh, call out there for Chuck Dixon's, Charles Dixon's Evangeline. I have not read that. Cool, man. Uh, I, mean, I probably have some issues. All right, nice. What an itch. Dude, yeah. Um, amazing. Wow. Uh, two issues in, 13... Mm -hmm jam-packed uh adventure uh, adventuresome episodes to go there's some uh, some great fun to be had i hope you can join me in the future for another episode um be happy to yeah um everybody thanks hope you've enjoyed this walkthrough we've gone much deeper than i think i ever thought we'd be getting on into these uh <laughs> when i first started this up but uh just remember uh we're out there you'll find these in the show notes out there on Instagram, um, out there, uh, we've got a Facebook group. That's not, uh, it doesn't seem to be quite the thriving environment for this kind of cast. I think I got a stronger following on Instagram. It's just, you know, a more visual environment. But whether you mm -hmm. find, whether you find uh, us on um, Instagram, whether you find us on Facebook uh, or YouTube or uh, the podcast, I'll be sure to make sure we've got all the URLs in the notes for you to get to because Lord knows, I don't remember them off the top of my head at this moment. <laughs> There's too many. All right. Join us. Uh, join us next time when we'll be looking at issue three. Uh, until then, everybody, magic is green. Stay excellent. Eli, anything you want to close out with? 
Just uh, enjoying it, having an amazing day. Have an amazing day. That's awesome. Take it easy, everybody. <laughs> Stay excellent. All righty. Bye.